You know, if there's one thing you can say about David and his life, it's that he was anything but average. David soared to higher heights than most people ever do, but he also sunk to deeper depths than most people ever will. And yet the verdict that God pronounced over David's life at the very end was that David was a man after his own heart. And as we've studied the life of David over these past few months, I I don't know about you, but I have found it sometimes almost hard to believe, almost very surprising that God would give this man that title after some of the things that he did. And that of all people, David would be the one person most closely identified with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But the thing that set David apart, as we've been studying in this series, has been our major theme, and it's very much true, especially as we get to the end of his life. The thing that set David apart was his heart for God, his heart. And one of the aspects of David's heart, one of the things that it means for you and I to have a heart for God, is that while many people in the world are asking, what is the minimum that God requires of me? A heart for God is one that is asking not, what do I have to do? But what can I do? What can I do for him who has done so much for me? And here in this final section of 2 Samuel, it's this aspect of David's heart for God which is highlighted here at the end of his life. As we leave the story of the life of David, this is the final thing that we're left with. This attitude, this heart of not what is the minimum that I can do for God, but how much can I do for him who has done everything for me. So in these final two chapters of 2 Samuel, there are three areas in which we're going to see this. If you're a note taker, this is for you. Here's our outline this morning in which we see more than the minimum in three areas. Number one, we're going to see the sweet psalmist's final words. Secondly, we're going to see the zeros who became heroes. And thirdly, we're going to see the essence of sacrifice. So let's begin by looking at the sweet psalmist's final words. We read in verse 1 of chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. Now as we get into this next section, I want you to understand that most likely these are not the last words that David ever spoke on his deathbed, but rather this is the final psalm that David wrote at the end of his life. So we read uh, from the second part of that first verse. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now it's important to realize that when David refers to himself as the son of Jesse, he's not just stating his father's name. No, he's talking about where he came from. Who was his father Jesse? He was a humble farmer. You might remember this, that David didn't come from wealth. He didn't come from privilege. He came from a, you know, working class family. His dad was a farmer. And he says, that's where I came from. I came from humble beginnings. And he's expressing his astonishment that God has taken him, a nobody, from nowhere and nothing. And he's made him somebody. He's raised him up on high. God took hold of David's life. God placed his spirit upon David. And God used David in big ways. He took somebody who was a nobody and made him into somebody. And David says, wow, God, you did that with me. David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's the title he gives himself here at the end of his life. And we assume that this was a title under which David was known amongst other people as well. You know, the thing that made David, David was the inner life of relationship with God. That's what set him apart. That's what made him David. 
David didn't just write the Psalms because he had to. Do you realize that? He didn't have a publicist breathing down his neck. He didn't have a contract with deadlines to meet to put out, you know, five Psalms a year or something. Nobody asked him to do this. This was simply David's creative expression of his relationship with God. You know, I think about this. If David's mentality had been, what is the minimum that I have to do for God? What is the minimum that God requires of me to just appease him and make him happy? David would have never become the sweet psalmist of Israel. But it was that heart of what can I do? What can I do for him who has done so much for me? How can I respond to him who has given me everything and been so good to me? That's why David wrote the Psalms and we all benefit from them even to this day. You know, but I can't help in that same thread of thought, I cannot help but wonder how many people miss out on becoming all that they could be, all that God might want them to be, all the ways that God might use them because they're so focused on what is the minimum requirement that I need to do. Let's continue on from verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. As David looks back and he reflects on his life and his career as king, he's struck by the great need for rulers to exercise justice. Now think about this. In David's own reign, this was maybe one of his greatest failures. I mean, he had several failures, but this was one of the greater ones. David had failed to exercise justice. In regard to his own sons, in regard to even himself, uh, he failed to practice justice. He didn't turn his sons in when they committed crimes. He never faced justice for his own sins. And that failure to execute justice and practice justice, it resulted in so many problems for David, especially later on in his life, and it resulted in so many problems for the nation, civil wars, insurrections, things like that. And so here at the end of his life, this is one of David's big takeaways, looking back on everything. He says, those who lead, they need to lead with justice. They must exercise justice. They must lead with fairness they must lead in the fear of the Lord and if they do the people they lead will be blessed and they will prosper you know many people and myself included believe that here in verse 4 when David is speaking of the king who rules with justice and is a light to the people that David isn't talking about himself he's talking about the Messiah and the reason is because in the next verse in verse 5 you can read that David talks about then the everlasting covenant that God made with him the promise that the Messiah would come from his lineage and be a king in his dynasty David's reign as king was blessed, but it was certainly not perfect. We have to admit that. And so David now, he looks forward. As he's looking back on his life, he also looks forward to the king who is to come. The king, the one, the true king who will rule with perfection in true justice in all the areas where he fell short. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting if you uh, think about it. From one perspective, David's reign as king was a disaster, right? Um, it was marred by scandals, corruption, attempted insurrection from David's own son. There were two civil wars, and there was three years of famine. Now, contrast that with me, if you will, with the reign of Solomon, Solomon, David's son. Now, Solomon ruled over Israel during its true golden age. 
Solomon's rule as king was marked by peace and prosperity. It was during the reign of Solomon that Israel's borders reached their, their farthest that they ever reached. The country was the largest it ever was. And Israel reached its greatest prominence and glory. You know, under Solomon, they didn't have corruption scandals. They didn't have civil wars. They didn't have famines like David did. During the reign of Solomon, the temple was built in Jerusalem. And which of these men, just based on those things, Solomon or David, which of them do you think had a more illustrious career or reign? Which of them would you expect to go down in history as the greatest king that Israel ever had? Well, probably we would say, based on those things, it's got to be Solomon. Yet throughout the Bible, whenever we read, uh, when it speaks of those two men, we read nothing but praise for David as king, David as a person, and also for uh, his reign as king. But Solomon is barely mentioned at all. And when he is, it's almost in a kind of backhanded way. You know, it's not really positive at all. The difference between David and Solomon, the thing that sets them apart, is that David was a man who had a deep personal relationship with God. Now you might remember how Solomon, as a young king, God told him, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Just ask me what was the one thing you want more than anything and I'll give it to you. Now think about that. That's quite an incredible offer. What would you say if God made that kind of offer to you? If he came to you and said, you can have one thing, one wish that you request, what would you ask for? Well, if you remember Solomon, he asked for wisdom. He said, I realize I'm in a bit over my head here with uh, these people and ruling them, and I need wisdom to rule over these people and to settle disputes. So that was his one request from God. God, would you give me wisdom? And God gave him wisdom. And God even commended Solomon for asking for such a noble thing when he could have asked for so many other things. But contrast that with David once again. David states in Psalm 27, he says, if I could have one wish, if I have one request, one desire, here's what it would be. It would be to dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire at his temple. In Psalm 84, David says, how lovely is your dwelling place. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I want you to see that. Do you see David's heart? Here at the end of his life, I want you to just, as we leave David this week, I want you to come away from it with this sense. Do you see David's heart? See, what Solomon wanted was good, but it wasn't the best. Think about that. Solomon wanted wisdom. You know what his passion was? Solomon's passion was self-improvement. I want to be better, and God can help me do that. I'm going to ask him to help me do that. But what was David's passion? David's passion was God himself. Now I want you to think about that for a moment and ask yourself this question. Is God your goal or is God the way that you are trying to get to your goal? Is God your goal or is God the way you're trying to get to your goal? You know, we've all got goals, right? Maybe you set your goals out there and you say, here are my goals. I want to have a great family. I want to have a successful career and I want to be happy. Those are my goals and God's going to help me get there. Now, that's not bad. Those are actually good things. In fact, they are noble things, just like Solomon. Those are noble, commendable desires. But is it the best? No, I I believe the best is to have that heart that David had, where you say, God himself is my goal. Knowing him, that is the ultimate prize. So is God your goal, or is God the way you're trying to get to your goal? That's one of the great differences between David and Solomon. For Solomon, God was useful But for David, God was beautiful. For Solomon, God was useful until Solomon had no more use for him. 
Do you remember that? That that's part of the story of Solomon, that at the end of his life, he had no more use for God. For Solomon, God was useful until Solomon had no more use for him. See, that's the problem. How about you? What is your view of God? Many people find God to be useful, unless that is that they have no use for him. But some people, gospel people, and that's what we want to be. We want to be gospel people. We don't just find God useful. We find God beautiful. That's why we seek him, because we find him beautiful. People who really understand the grace of God, the love of God. People who understand that they've been forgiven, that they've been redeemed by an act of God's grace. Those people, gospel people, they don't just find God useful, they find God beautiful. And for those people, God isn't just the way that they're trying to reach their goals, but knowing God, having a deep personal relationship with him, that becomes their goal, the prize, the very great reward that they seek after. See, this is what it was that set David apart from Solomon. This is the reason why David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, is regarded as the greatest king that Israel ever had. He's the one who's closely identified with Jesus. Why? Because of this heart he had for God. So as we move on from the last words of the sweet psalmist, we also come to the next section in which we see the zeros who became heroes. Go with me to verse 8 in the beginning. It says, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now what's going to follow here is basically the hall of fame. This is the Hall of Fame of David's Mighty Men. Now you might remember when we first met these mighty men. It was back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Feel free to look at that section if you want. Here's the story. David was on the run from Saul. King Saul was trying to kill David. David was on the run and, sorry, he was hiding out. He was living in a cave, the cave of Adullam. And while he was living in this cave and he became incredibly depressed, people began coming out to him to be with him in this cave and they asked him to be their leader. You know, which was really great because David was getting very lonely and very distraught. And so great, cool, all these people are coming out to David. This is awesome, right? Except who were these people who come out to David at the cave of Adullam? What kind of people were these? Well, well, we saw there that these were not exactly the cream of the crop, were they? It tells us in 1 Samuel 22 that these are the people who came out to David at the cave of Adullam. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter of soul, these are the people who came to David. Basically, it's a whole bunch of losers. That's who these guys were, right? They were the misfits. They were the rejects of society. But it says there in 1 Samuel 22 that David became captain over them. Well, congratulations, David. You're the king of the losers. But David took these guys in just as they were, and he took in these misfits, this ragtag group of zeros, and he shared his heart with them, his heart for the Lord. He shared that with them, and he trained them in everything that he did, and they became David's mighty men. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read about what kind of men These guys became under David's leadership. It says this, they became mighty and experienced warriors, experts with shield and spear whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Well, that's a far cry from where they started, isn't it? It says also there in 1 Chronicles 12, they were filled with the Spirit of God. That's who they became, but I want you to understand that is not who they started out as. They became mighty men of valor, but they started out as nobodies, as losers, as misfits, as zeros. Their lives were mess. 
They were depressed. They were unsuccessful. But they came to David. He became captain over them. He became their leader and he raised them up into men of God. Isn't that incredible? You see, men and women of God are not born. They're made. And God loves to take people who just aren't that special and he loves to make them into something great. That's what he specializes in. Into men and women of God whom he can use to even change the world. If you look at Jesus' disciples, the same story with those guys. And it's true of me and you as well. If God can do that with them, then why not with you? And why not with me? So let's look at some of these mighty men. In verse 8, we read the first one here. Josheb Bashabeth. It says that he fought 800 men on his own with a spear. Verse 9, we read about Eleazar. This man, it says he stood behind, or he stood beside David, and they defied the Philistines. I love that. They defied them. Everyone else retreated. All of Israel retreated. But Eleazar and David stood their ground. They fought side by side. And it says that they fought so hard there in verse 10 that Eleazar's sword froze to his hand. In verse 11, we read about this man named Shammah. It says that he stood his ground in a field of lentils and he fought the Philistines all by himself. And then in verse 13, we read this interesting story about three particular mighty men who uh, one time the Philistines had captured the city of Bethlehem. Now you might remember that David, he was a shepherd and Bethlehem was his hometown and so these three men, they overheard David as they're hiding out in their fortress. They overhear David, you know, just kind of saying in passing, oh, how I wish I could drink from the well that's right there next to the gate in Bethlehem. You see, David had grown up in that town and he grew up drinking from that well as a child. And now the Philistines were occupying that town and they couldn't get in there. They couldn't reach that well anymore. And David, you know, was a little bit distraught over that. So we read in verse 16, it says, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it back to David. Wow. But check this out. But David would not drink of it. He poured it on the ground out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? I mean, can you imagine this? Here these guys go and risk their lives to get David a drink of water from this well, you know, just trying to do something nice for him. And David says, I can't drink this. And he pours it out before the Lord. But you need to understand that David wasn't being rude. That was a high honor. David was saying, this is too much. What you've done is too special. This is too special for me to drink. The only way to really honor what you've done for me is to pour this out as an offering to the Lord. And then in verse 20, this guy's my favorite. His name is Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And it says that he was a valiant man and a doer of great deeds. Man, I, I tell you what, wouldn't you like to be remembered in that way? Well, he was a valiant man, a valiant woman, a doer of great deeds. And it says there, one of the things that Benaiah did, it says he struck down a lion in a pit on a snowy day, right? Like, he just adding to it, right? He's just kind of showing off at that point. I'm going to take on that lion, but I'm going to wait until it snows. And then I'm going to do it. It's all slippery, and I'm going to take down that lion. Now let me tell you this in reflecting on these mighty men. You know, there is a great need in our day for heroic men and women. There's a great need for valiant people who are willing to stand up and do great deeds. Maybe you say, I'm just a mom. I'm just a receptionist. I, I have a job. I have bills to pay. I got kids to cart around. 
I don't have time to be a hero. I don't have time to do great deeds. But I need you to know this. That's not true. That whatever position you are in in life, God wants to use you. You know, I read one author who said this. He said, I fear that the church today has settled into an acceptance of mediocrity. Such an acceptance of a low vision where we only look to what makes us happy and then we do the bare minimum before God. Isn't that sad? You know, we live in a culture which is so focused on ourselves. Now think through that with me if you would. When we get really focused on ourselves, when the supreme pursuit of most people's lives is to make themselves happy and to make themselves content. And we place so much significance on ourselves. One author I read said this. He said, the more significance you place on yourself, the more significant you make yourself, the less significant your life will actually be. You know that's so true. The more significance you place on yourself and your contentment and seeking after these things, the less significant your life will be in the big picture of the world. The more you live for yourself, the less your life will actually matter. Do you realize that irony? So many people are out there trying to live for themselves and this is what our culture tells us to do. But the truth is, the more you live for yourself, the less your life actually matters in the big picture because the only thing you're living for is yourself. The only thing you have worth living for or dying for is yourself. And at that point, well then, what is the point of your life? You see, the more significance you place on yourself, the more significance you place on your own comfort, on your own happiness, on your own fulfillment, the less significant your life will actually be in the big picture. Instead of that, we are called to live like these mighty men, to give our lives over to God, to fight his battles, and to be valiant, and to carry out his mission. Not striving to do the minimum, not asking, okay, what's the minimum that I have to do to appease God? No, to say, uh, not to say I want to do the minimum so I can get back to living for myself. No, but pouring out your life for him who poured out his life for you. That's the vision we're given. Moving on from the mighty men, I want to talk about the final chapter here of 2 Samuel and the essence of sacrifice. Chapter 24, starting in verse 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. The setting of this final chapter of 2 Samuel is that David now is going to take a census of the nation, and it's going to greatly displease the Lord. Now here's what's interesting. In the parallel account of this story, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it says this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So it would seem here in 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 1, that the he referred to that pronoun there, it refers to Satan who tempted David to take the census. Now, why would it be considered a bad thing for David to take a census anyway? I mean, every 10 years we take a census here in the United States. Does that somehow displease God also, you know? Well, well the reason this was a big deal was because there was an understanding in ancient society, ancient world, and in a way there's the same understanding in our day as well. That you only count things that belong to you. 
In other words, you count your money because it belongs to you, but you don't count your friend's money because your friend's money doesn't belong to you. You count how many sheep you have in your yard, but you don't go and keep records of how many sheep your neighbor has in his yard. In our day, for example, if the post office accidentally puts your neighbor's mail in your mailbox, you don't open up your neighbor's credit card statement because that's not yours. Uh, the, this was, there was a very powerful sense in which God had spoken and said that Israel is my possession. Israel is a nation. They are my people. And so it was okay for God to order David to take a census of God's people. But for David to take a census of Israel was presumptuous. And furthermore, this wasn't a time of war. David wasn't doing this out of any need to know how many soldiers he had at his disposal for a reason. David was basically doing this to kind of pat himself on the back and, and boost his ego. And this pride and impropriety on David's part, this is what displeased the Lord. So you see, the point here is this. It's not just what you do, but it's why you do it that also matters to God. Even David's advisors, we can see, they knew that this was not a good idea for David to do this. You read in verse 3. Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Now go down with me to verse 8. So when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. In total we see here 1.3 million fighting men in Israel, which would put the estimated total population of Israel at this time around 5 to 6 million. Now that's a big nation, especially in the ancient world. 5 to 6 million was a lot of people. Continue from verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what I shall return to him who sent me. It took nine months for David to take this census. David had nine months to call this thing off and realize that this was not good for him to be doing this, but he didn't. And after it was done, it was like right after it's done, they've pronounced the numbers to everybody. David's boasted in his glory. And then he realizes that he made a huge mistake. And so the prophet of Gad comes to David with this message from God. He says, David, there's going to be repercussions for what you've done, for this sin. He says, but here's the thing. God wants me to offer you three options. Three options. You get to choose, David. Here's your options. They're all bad. You can either have three years of famine, or you can have three months of attack from a neighboring nation, or you can have three days of pestilence. All those options are bad. Like, none of those are good. So which one is David going to choose? Verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in great distress, but let us fall into the hand of the Lord. 
for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. This is incredible. David says, I would rather fall into the hands of a merciful God than fall into the hands of men. You see in the first two options there, right? You got the three months of famine and the, the attack from a neighboring nation. In both of those situations, Israel's fate would somehow be in the hands of other people, of another nation. Right? If it was famine, they would have to go begging for food to another nation. If it's another country attacking them, then they're kind of at the mercy, you know, how those people attack them. But the third option, pestilence, well, everybody would be vulnerable, including David. David would be vulnerable to pestilence. And not only that, but it would be God. He would be in control of it. And David says, I would rather fall into the hands of a merciful God than fall into the hands of men. Furthermore, I think it's very significant that David chooses this pestilence because in a war, David would be, him and the royal family, they would be protected. They would be insulated from that. In a famine, they would be insulated. They would have enough money to buy food no matter what the cost. But in pestilence, it's no respecter of persons, right? It's going to come, and even David and his family would be vulnerable to it. And David says, I'm done trying to insulate myself from justice, I'm done trying to do that. I'm done trying to protect myself. He says, no, if God wants to even judge me, then I'm open to that. I'm okay with that. And I would rather fall into the hands of a merciful God than into the hands of men. So let's read what happened in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So once again, we see here that, yes, a lot of people died, but God kind of called it off. He showed mercy and he stopped it at this interesting place. I mean, what a kind of just a, seems a bit arbitrary, right? It's this this threshing floor of Aruna. He said, I want you to stop there. So that's where it ended. We'll see why as we go on. Verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You see, David is saying, Lord, do to me whatever you see fit. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming, to coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from my people. Once again, we see this theme of atonement that we've seen uh, recurring throughout this book, but especially towards the end of this book. And this is really one of the key themes of the Bible, atonement. David has sinned, and because he is the head of the nation, then the, the whole nation now suffers because of what he did. Now the whole nation finds itself under a curse. But God comes and says, David, here's what you can do. If you make atonement for sin, then the curse will end. So David, that's what he's going to do. He's going to make atonement with these sheep, these lambs. And again, remember that all the pages of the Old Testament, they rustle with the rumor of what is to come in Jesus Christ. And so this is a foreshadowing. Uh, these lambs are a foreshadowing of the lamb 
who will one day come to take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ who died on the cross of Calvary in our place as an atoning sacrifice, the innocent in the place of the guilty, through his death we might live. That's the idea of atonement, and we see a foreshadowing of that here. But check this out. There's more to this. This really is pointing us to Jesus. The place where the pestilence stopped. I said it seems kind of arbitrary, right? It's just this threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna the Jebusite. Now this is the place where David, he's going to build this altar. He's going to make sacrifice to atone for the sin which has caused this pestilence. And so David buys this land in order to build an altar there. But here's the deal. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we read that this place is the place where David uh, builds the altar. This is the place where Solomon will build the temple. It says this in 2 Chronicles 3. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Isn't that interesting? David buys this land to build this altar and this is going to be the place where the temple is built where sacrifice will be made for sin but there's more. It says that this altar was built on Mount Moriah which is the name of the city that Jerusalem, is the name of the hill that the city of Jerusalem sits on. You might have known that Jerusalem is sometimes referred to as the city on a hill. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, he's referring to Jerusalem. The name of the mountain that Jerusalem sits on historically is Mount Moriah. Interestingly, Mount Moriah is the place where God instructed Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22 to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him to the Lord. And of course, you remember the story, I hope, that that was just a test. God didn't make Abraham go through with it. But it's interesting that God told Abraham, check out the language God used back in Genesis, a thousand years before this. He says, I want you to go to Mount Moriah. And there I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. Isn't that language a little bit eerily foreshadowing? Isn't, it, isn't this place eerily foreshadowing? Mount Moriah, Jerusalem. This is the place where David makes his sacrifice now here at the end of his life for the sin of the people. And it's the place where God would one day make the ultimate sacrifice, where God would bring his son, his only son, whom he loved, and sacrifice him for us on the cross of Calvary to make atonement for our sins so that the curse might be broken, so that we might live. See, isn't that incredible? You see, I want you to see this, that all of the Bible, all these stories, they all speak of, they all point to, they all build up towards the ultimate story, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look how this ends, and it ends incredibly in verse 22. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But David said to Aruna, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So here's this man, Aruna. He's trying to be nice. Of course, this is the king. And he says, King, I, I, I'm not going to make you pay for this stuff. Here, I'll just give it to you. I'm happy to just give it to you. Consider this my gift to you. 
But David's answer is so classic and it's so important for us to understand. David says, I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. David understands this, that a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice unless it costs you something. And David, here's the deal, he's not looking for the cheapest way possible to please God. He's not looking for the cheapest, easiest way to please God. But isn't that convicting? Because isn't that sometimes exactly what we look for? The cheapest way possible to please God. We know that God wants us to seek him and spend time with him every day in prayer, in his word. But the natural inclination of our hearts that we automatically gravitate towards is the question, okay, so what exactly does that mean? What's the minimum? Is five minutes? Is that cool? Can I do it in my car? Can I do it on the way to work? Is that good enough? Um, You know, what's the minimum daily requirement? Just tell me so I can make sure I'm meeting that. That's the heart, don't you see, that's looking for the cheapest way possible to please God. What's the minimum requirement? Just tell me so I can do it. You see, our God is a giving God. He's an abundantly giving God. And he wants us to be giving people, giving of our time, our energy, our resources in ways that don't just benefit ourselves, but in ways that further his mission in the world. But of course, the natural inclination of our hearts is to say, okay, I'll give because I know that God wants me to, but what is the least amount that I have to give in which I can still make God happy? The Bible tells us, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that let everyone give as they have been blessed, or or basically saying in proportion to what you have and how you've been blessed, you should give proportionately. But there can be this tendency in our hearts to say, okay, I'll give proportionally. So what exactly does that mean? Like what is the smallest proportion that I can give? Do I have to give from the net or do I have to give from the gross? I need to know because I need to know what's the minimum I need to do so I can do that. Can't you get the sense that that's the heart that says what is the cheapest way that I can satisfy God so I can have the most left over for myself? What's incredible and I want you to see this as we're looking at the life of David and the end that this was not his heart. Here it says someone's offering him land. Real estate, right? They're offering him farm animals for free. Now if you think about that in terms of today and our money and what those things would cost, I mean we're talking about, uh, in our county at least, that would be hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even millions of dollars. This is the bargain of a lifetime. Who doesn't love a bargain, right? I'm sure that David loved a bargain. But when it comes to the Lord, David says, I don't, I'm not looking for a bargain. I'm not looking to get out of this the cheapest way I can. I don't want to just give the minimum possible to God. He understood a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice unless it costs me something. And here's here's the truth. Here's the principle. No matter what, you will sacrifice for that which is your God. You will. It's just a it's just a a rule. You know, in other words, whatever it is that you are willing to sacrifice for in your life, that reveals what you truly worship. What you sacrifice for reveals what you truly worship. In our society, it's very common for people to make great sacrifices for the sake of their own comfort and entertainment. Uh, Other people make enormous sacrifices for their careers. What you make sacrifices for in your life reveals what you truly worship. And if you're not willing to sacrifice things in your life unto the Lord, then you really need to ask yourself, is he really your God? 
Because whatever is your God, you will sacrifice unto that God. One old commentator, his name was Adam Clark, he said this, He who has a religion which costs him nothing has a religion that is worth nothing. No one will esteem the service of God if it costs him nothing. You know, I think sometimes churches fail in the sense that they try to make things too easy on people. No, he says here, no one will esteem the service of God unless it costs them, if it costs them nothing, they won't esteem it. You will sacrifice to your God and sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it costs you something. And one of the key elements of what it means to have a heart for God is something we see now three times in these final two chapters. We saw it in David's writing of the Psalms. We see it in the attitudes of the mighty men. We see it now here in David's refusal to sacrifice that which costs him nothing. It's this attitude that says, I'm not looking to do the minimum for God. I'm not looking to just, I'm not looking for the minimum of what I have to do to please God. No, I want to give all of myself, all of my life, all of my creativity, all of my strength, all of my love, all of my time and resources to him who gave all of himself for me. The way you develop that kind of attitude, that kind of heart for God, is by seeing and understanding the grace of God towards you. It's through understanding the message of the gospel that you are more flawed than you even realize, but you are more loved by God than you ever could dare to dream. When you understand that and you start to grasp just how much God has loved you, just how gracious he has been to you, that's when you begin to develop a heart for God and you begin to desire to give all of yourself to him who gave all of himself for you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the great gospel, the great message of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, of how you came to save us and redeem us and rescue us. How you gave yourself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might live. And Lord, and, and as we reflect on these things and we reflect on all that we've studied here in the life of David and life of these other people about what it means to have a heart for you, Lord, may you work that kind of heart into us. May we reflect on the gospel and may it stir up within us a heart for God, a heart that desires to do more than just the minimum, but a heart that desires to do as you did towards us in giving everything. So Lord, may you work that kind of heart in us. May we have the heart of David that desires to give it all to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.